As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm Christy Penley, and I'm here with my friends, Matt and Ben. Hey. Hey, Christy. Hi, Christy. Hey, nice guys. Nice to see you. Yep. You look like, oh, Matt's stretching. Yeah. You need more coffee? Mm-hmm. Did you guys notice my name today? Need more coffee? <laughs> yep. Hashtag need more coffee. <laughs> Hashtag need more coffee. Uh, uh, I, think, I think I said before that sometimes I don't put my real name on things, so no. that's how I'm feeling today. You yeah. know, I'm feeling like... I think when I eat lunch and then all my blood, I think this is what the story I tell myself, all my blood rushes to my belly and then I just, I want to take like a three hour nap. That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> so you caught me mid yawn, mid stretch. Mid yawn, mid stretch. Mm-hmm. It's good. Well, um, I'm excited for our podcast today. Yeah. Why? Because, Why? because it's with Scott McKnight and he wrote this book called Tove and I actually, um, it was very familiar with the people mm-hmm. that were mentioned in that book. Um, but also because Scott McKnight had a pretty significant impact on my husband and loving on my husband, being kind to him and taking him to a pub and listening and talking. And um, mm. yeah, I just have really great memories with him. And you guys know him as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Scott was a teacher at a college in Chicagoland uh, 15 years ago. And, you know, your husband and I, Christy, went to the same seminary, and he would, like, hang out with us. Yeah. Because we were, like, asking all these questions, and this is, like, when the emergent church was bubbling oh, up. yeah. And post-modernity was the the bad guy, and, and a lot of those of us, like, getting advanced degrees were like, 
but we have so many questions and we can't ask them. And Scott was like, gather around this table and we'll talk about questions. (laughs) He was such a a pastorally uh, good guy. Plus he's like a, he's kind of a dude. He's, Mm -hmm. He's not your typical like stay in my office all day and read books and wear tweed jackets guy. He's like, I'm going to watch a Cubs game while I write up my next book kind of guy. <laughs> while, while I smoke a cigar. <laughs> yeah, so yes. know, he felt really relatable and, you know, we stayed in touch since. And yes, I was excited for this interview too, Christy. All that to say. Well, you know, what's really fun is that I pick a word every year and, and I, I pick a word Actually, it's probably started 20 years ago with with my pastor, Dennis Jackson, and he challenged us to pick a word, to memorize scripture, to read books about it, to just kind of press in. Hmm. And so I've done words, you know, like love and forgiveness and all these kinds of things throughout the years. This year's word, with before before I knew we were doing this podcast, was tove, hmm. which is a Hebrew word that means good or goodness. Hmm. And... Um, and really pressing in in 2021 to what does that mean? And when I read his book and when we did the interview, um, there there really was some healing, some really good healing in my heart um, after this interview because I needed to hear some things that were said in that book and that he said in this podcast. So mm. um, I'm just grateful. And it kind of all tied together um, just in the hmm. timing of all of this. So hmm. let's, uh, let's get into this podcast and, and hear from Scott McKnight. Yeah. Scott McKnight, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Good to be with you. Yeah. Scott, uh, for the two people of our listeners who've never heard of you and don't know anything about you, uh, give us a brief introduction. What do you spend your time doing? What should we know about you? Okay. I am a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Um, I think this is my eighth year. Uh, I taught 12 years at Trinity, 17 years at North Park University, undergrads, and then I think this is my eighth year at North Park, at Northern Seminary. So, and um, I use my time, I've, I've spent a lot of time teaching and grading papers and interacting with students this uh, since middle of August. Uh, but last night I taught my last class of the fall term and uh, I have some time off now, so I'll be more focused on being able to uh, do some writing. Yeah. What's your current writing project right now? Anything specific? Well, um, I am finishing up a commentary on the pastoral epistles for Cambridge University Press. And um, I finished Second Timothy, and we've done First and Second Timothy. And in the break, I'm writing articles. Here we go again with these earphones. AirPods won't stay, stay in my ear. Um, I'm writing an article. I'm writing articles for. I leave between projects. I, I leave uh, little little things. So I I'm writing articles for the Dictionary of Paul and his letters, oh. second edition, one on Romans, and one on um, James and Paul. And uh, today I'll finish those. Then a little uh, piece for a, a friend of mine in South Africa, 
and uh, his name Stefan Jobert, and uh, on on Paul's understanding of generosity, and then um, I'm going to start a book on Revelation. So pretty much, you're not busy. You're just on break. Sounds like. <laughs> That's what my breaks are for. <laughs> yes. And yeah. that was Christy Penley, who's also joining us today. Um, and Scott, most uh, many, many of our listeners know you as the curator and author of the blog Jesus Creed. I'll never forget, we met when I was at Trinity 15 years ago. Yeah, I, I remember. I, yeah, and I was sitting in a, uh, one of my professors, um, I guess we're going to name names all throughout this podcast, so we might as well get started now. One of my professors uh, with the initials D.A. and the last name of Carson was talking about his book, Becoming Conversant with Emergent, and he he got this question. Uh, uh, some, of this, some of this stuff needs to be talked about in shorter form. Would you ever consider uh, having a blog? And Carson went on this you know, 90-second rant about how blogs were superfluous and, uh, you know, uh, basically wasting your words and time because it was going into the vacuum of the internet. And I remember thinking then, I remember thinking, not Jesus, Creed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Even then, man, uh, that blog was blessing me a lot. Yeah, and I remember uh, so so much for what he was saying is that his TA, Andy Nacelli, Oh yeah, gave him a routine report of ninety different blogs. So, uh, so that was a. Nacelli told me this. I thought, okay, that goes in the face of what he was. So much for superfluous. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's uh, Carson's known for sitting in judgment on new things that are coming along, and uh, it's just the way he's been. Yeah. Well. <laughs> um, Scott, we have you, the pleasure of talking to you today about the latest book that you co-wrote with your daughter, which must have been uh, a unique and uh, awesome experience for you. It's called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. This book is, is sort of two parts of this book. One is sort of a, uh, a popular history told through you and Laura's lenses of kind of the church to blow up in the last four years, in particular centered right there in the suburbs of Chicago with Willow Creek and Harvest Bible Chapel. And then the second half of the book is maybe less of a expose and a history and more of a vision for how do we create churches that are resilient and resistant to abuse. Uh, maybe to get us yeah, started... Yeah. Where did the idea of this book come from? How did you know you needed to write it? Well, this, this is a little bit of a story, and it's, um, it's kind of fun to tell for me because it involved Laura. Um, when the story broke about Willow, well, I mean, first of all, Laura and Mark met at, uh, her husband met at Willow Creek. Mark was on staff with the Willow Creek Association for many, many years, and um, they got us to start going, and we went to Willow Creek for about 10 years. And uh, so we were, we're, we're interested. We care about Willow Creek. I defended Willow Creek. I got criticized for defending Willow Creek. And uh, I still defend the parts that I think were really valuable. So um, 
when the story broke, I was sitting in our house uh, with Chris. I started to read the story and I told her the Tribune is publishing an article about Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. I said, this is going to be serious stuff. So we read it. And uh, as I was reading it, I said, this is true. This happened. Bill Hybels uh, harassed and abused women. And because I knew those women's names and I knew that they weren't going to be lying about these, this kind of story. So we sent the story to Laura and Laura and Mark, as longtime attenders um, and members, started to communicate with us. And we just started talking back and forth. They were stunned by it all and really thought it was a bit of a joke that this story was going to be told at first because they just couldn't believe that this would be true about Bill Hybels. But they lived in the uh, luminosity or the uh, uh, middle, middle land, uh, numinosity, what, what word am I, liminality, of uh, thinking that, you know, they had learned so much and gained so much from Bill Hybels, and yet they loved Vonda Dyer and Nancy Beach and Nancy Ortberg, and they knew these women and thought, no way, this is really putting us in a difficult position. So, so we went back and forth for quite a while. One day I was, I was traveling, um, and we had talked so much. I was traveling, and I was in an airport lounge, I think it was in Cincinnati, and I, just, I was just so, um, so much going on about the Willow Creek situation that I sat down and wrote out, oh, maybe a thousand words of what I was thinking about it. Just to put it, you know, that's the way I process things. I write it out. So I, I put it on paper. And then I sent it to Lauren Mark, and we went back and forth, and I kind of edited and thought about it. Then I went to, uh, this was March. I think I wrote it up in April. In June, I went with students to Turkey, Greece, and Italy. And when we came back, um, I called Laura maybe the next day and said, what's going on? at the Willow Creek story, and she said nothing. And I said, well, something has to be done. Willow Creek is stalling in order to discourage the women and eventually silence them. So I believe it was that week, maybe it was Wednesday or Thursday, and Laura took care of all the, these kinds of details, that I published my first blog post about it. And, um, you know, it it made an impact. Um, I was told that throughout the Willow Creek Church, South Barrington campus, everyone was reading it and talking about it. And, you know, at that point I thought, okay, I've just made a lot of enemies, uh, but I, I'm going to defend these women. I think these women are telling the truth, and by golly, uh, somebody has to stand up for them, and people aren't. And I learned that pastors you know, they're not going to say anything because they don't know. And they don't want people doing this to their church. And it's really difficult at times to know whether to speak up and or to just wait. So I spoke up and then Steve Carter resigned or he spoke up in a blog. And then he went back and forth with the elders. And eventually he resigned, walked off uh, the stage, whatever, on a Sunday morning. And that just started unraveling as the story came out in the New York Times about Pat Baranowski. Suddenly, uh, the Willow Creek people realized this happened and we're in a difficult situation. So 
At that point, that's all I had done. I wrote a couple more blog posts, I believe, to try to clarify things because Laura would ask me questions. I was getting letters constantly, people making comments on the blog, Facebook, Twitter, you know, some people saying I was just trying to get after Willow Creek and that was just a bunch of nonsense. Uh, but you just have to learn to live with this when you uh, write blogs. People are going to say things about you. That's the way it is. So then, um, this is really funny. I, Laurel wanted me to write about it. I said, no, I don't want to write about it. I've got other things to work, that I'm working on. And uh, she said, no, I think you should. I said, well, no. Well, this is the, the I've told this before, but this is what happened. I was reading a book on pastors in Germany and how they responded to Hitler after World War II was over. And I got to tell you, I was stunned by the parallels between how Willow Creek responded to the women and how the German pastors responded to accusations of their complicity in the Holocaust. I thought, okay. So I just started taking notes of the sorts of things. Can you hear me? I guess I can. I'm all right. I just started taking notes. And it was curious to me. I wasn't thinking of writing a book. But we were together with Lauren Mark at Christmas. And um, they started talking. it, And I said, you know something? I think, I think we got something here. Uh, and I said, I don't, I'm not interested in writing an expose of Willow Creek. I'm just not interested in that. And I was, I've been approached by publishers to do that. And I said, look, I'm not a church historian. I'm not an American historian. Both of those are needed to be really good at doing this, to set it in context. And I said, Willow Creek is not going to give me access to records. And that's what would be needed. So I said, no. Um, but then I started studying this and it became a chapter in the book called False Narratives. And those false narratives um, were an attempt to put together, in a sense, let's call this Augustinian human depravity when confronted with truth. How do people respond when they realize that someone knows their secrets? You know, they, they try to silence people, they lie, all these things. They spin the story, you don't understand me, etc. So I started putting that together and we started working from there, and then it, it went in different directions. Laura wrote up a, like a 40, maybe 50-page account of the story of Willow Creek. So that was the beginning of the book, and it's, it's down to just a few pages now, but she had written about 50 pages. And uh, so we, we started working there, and uh, very early on, because of the blog post, I had come up with this idea of goodness, that we need to talk about goodness. And so I began to study the Hebrew word tov, uh, which is the word for goodness, and how it's used in the Bible, and, and how important it is to a biblical understanding of, let's say, the proper kind of life as God designs it. Uh, so I would started working with that topic, and Laura would work on stories, and she I would say to her, you know, we need, a, we need a, a good story about churches responding. She found this amazing story about Pastor Cunningham at Tate's Presbyterian Church. And so she started working that side. I would work the biblical side. I brought in some stories. She brought in some stories. 
She asked questions. She said, I have no idea what you're talking about here. So I would re rewrite things. And eventually, uh, we went to Tyndale and asked them if they'd be interested uh, with a co-authored book, and they did. They, and, and that's how it happened. So now that's a long version, but it was really fun to work with Laura. She, she's a public school teacher, and she uh, teaches grade school. So she had a whole summer. And I mean, that, that's what she did all summer. She worked and really liked it. She enjoys writing and she can write. She has voice. She's learned you know, to say it her own way. And so it was really fun to put that together. Yeah, that's great, Scott. Uh, as I read, I was talking to Christy before we started recording. Uh, she and I uh, both spent time in the suburbs of Chicago. Together, we were uh, friends in grad school. And the church that we both found ourselves at, I was a pastor and Christy was one on our preaching team. And we often joked, uh, this was kind of a, it wasn't, this was true for some people, not all people. We often joked that our little church was Willow Rehab. We'd have people that would go to Willow Creek or Harvest Bible Chapel and then would sort of spin out from those churches and kind of find their way to our little church. Um, and Christy, uh, actually, uh, you can share a little bit about how you intersected with this. You actually taught at Harvest Bible. Yeah, I was the Bible teacher um, for the junior high and taught 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, and then also ran their chapel program at both of the campuses for five years until we moved um, to Colorado. And so it was fascinating to me as I read your book um, – I mean, I knew people, I knew the names, I knew the people, and I had been in that culture. And um, I'm glad, I, I'm just really thankful that you and Laura wrote this book, because I found myself um, in the, reading the pages of this, Scott, that there was some healing. And I think that that was like the longing, your heart's desire, you and Laura, that you wanted women and, and people who had been in cultures that had been abusive to to find some healing, that it didn't have to be that way, that there was tov, that there, there could be a goodness culture um, that people live and work in, and, and um, I'm thankful that you wrote it. Well, thank you. So you were at uh, Harvest. I, I, I hadn't remembered, I had forgotten that. Um, so you experienced some of that culture firsthand. You know, what we've, we've heard from so many people, and this is, we get letters almost every day. And Laura gets some really amazing letters. And I think it's because she's so active on Twitter that people think, well, I'll just write to her and maybe this will get to Scott as well. Um, and then, of course, she's, she sends them to me. But Christy, the amazing thing is the number of people who've told us that the book is giving them a language for their experiences. And... Um, you know, to, to me, this is, this is the language we need to use for these experiences. But it's almost like uh, when you are a part of it, you don't have a language to describe what's going on. You're just experiencing it. Yeah. And, and, and even in your experience, it's almost like it's foggy. It's, um, yeah. it's just so not clear. And until maybe you get out of it, and obviously I'm out of it now for over 10 years, um, it... it 
it just gets clearer and clearer. And you're right. The verbiage that you use, the language that you use helped me be able to articulate what I felt, what I experienced, what I don't want to experience, um, you know, in my next job and and what, what to look for. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm sad that this is, this was your experience, but, uh, we're glad that you're healing from it. And, uh, you know, I have, I have a lot of friends who've been at Harvest. So I, I know some pretty serious stories that have happened there. So, yeah. So, yeah. I guess, I guess, Scott, I want to turn to the Tove because there's some really uh, shaking, imagination shaping uh, practices that you give us in the second half of the book. But I wonder, like, how did we get to the place? where the person we look to for leadership who hosted the Global Leadership Summit, how do we get to the place where the paragon of leadership uh, was actually an abusive, toxic leader and we didn't know it and we couldn't name it? Like, that shakes a lot of people to their core and it creates a lot of uh, disillusionment and mistrust like in your mind like why were we ill-equipped to see this and name this 15 years ago what was missing um wow you know this is this is the big one and um i don't think there is an answer to it in the sense that this is why it happened but let me let me just put this out there to begin with is that evangelicals uh, valorize and make heroes of people. The bigger the hero becomes, in almost every case, the farther distant they become from us and the more of a persona they become to us. So all we see of Bill Hybels, and and I'm not just blaming him here, um, you could talk about James McDonald. You could talk about any of these big mega church pastors, Craig Groeschel, for instance. The more um, that we valorize them, and the bigger the church becomes, the more they become a, a wonderful face on a screen in a church. And when when they become distant like that. We now don't know what's really going on behind closed doors. And the bigger they become, the bigger the church becomes, the farther uh, people are from that person in most cases. Most of these mega church pastors, um, and I'm, I'm not going to say that this is characteristic of all mega church pastors. I'm not with your buddy David Fitch on this. I do have... <laughs> I do have hesitations about mega churches, and I do think that there is a singular problem about them. But most mega church pastors do not pastor people. They probably pastor a few other leaders, but more they are leaders and directors and managers and administrators of other people, and then they become platform speakers who can attract a large audience. Um, So that's one thing. 
The second thing is um, we, va- uh, we valorize success measured by, uh, I, I can't remember how Steve Carter said this, but it was amazing. Butts in seats, baptisms, and bucks in the plate. The three B's. If, if there are a lot of people coming to church, and if a lot of people are getting baptized, and if we've got a lot of money coming in, we are a success. Okay, that is a fundamental mistake. I mean, that is so deep-rooted as an error of what churches do that it's ineradicable in our evangelical culture and it is theologically erroneous. Um, What we need to measure as success is what I call Christoformity, Christ-likeness, character, tov. That's, that's what needs to be measured for there to be talk, uh, to any talk about success. But we have gotten a pastor who's distant, and we have character divorced from success. We have Christoformity divorced from from how we measure things. And now all of a sudden, as long as the institution, the church, the programs are succeeding and we can measure it, then uh, we're doing the right things. Listen, we met, Laura and I and Chris, my wife Chris, met with a pastor recently who, is a leader at Willow Creek. And this pastor, I won't give you name or gender or anything else, said, Willow Creek lives in a feedback loop. In other words, they're always asking, what do people think? And if people like it, they keep doing it. If they don't like it, they don't do it. Well, that was the very thing that happened with the reveal study, if you remember, okay? I met with the, uh, the person who designed the reveal study, and I, I, her name is Callie. I said, Callie, I'm going to tell you, I'm a theologian. I'm a Bible guy. I don't think the way we measure things is whether the people in our church like it. I said, I think we measure things by whether we're faithful to the gospel or not. You know, sometimes faithfulness to the gospel leads to something not being liked. Well, if we go in a feedback loop of just saying, what do people think? And they don't like that idea, you better not preach on that again, or they don't like that person that you use. Well, you know, that's too bad. Um, Sometimes the gospel hits us where we're most vulnerable, often it does, and tells us that we're wrong and that we need to repent. But if we're always measuring whether people like it, we have a vicious cycle of, it's just nothing other than uh, giving people what they want. And I'm not gonna say that that's characteristic of, of, of megachurches. I don't know that. I mean, I've never talked to people like this about that topic. Uh, I, I did see that reveal study, and it deeply concerned me. But I really, I really don't know that that's characteristic. 
But if it is, it needs to be checked and repented from because what we have to ask is whether that gospel that we're preaching is taking us to the wall and putting us in the corners that it's designed to do. So, okay, I'd, I'd say that's, I think that's three points. I think those are three pretty good points, though, myself. Yes, Scott. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good answer to an unanswerable question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, everyone, uh, just a quick word. Um, most of you know this, but Gravity Leadership Academy is sponsored. No, Gravity Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Gravity Leadership Academy. Yes. Is what I meant to say, um, which is our 10-month uh, training and coaching intensive for um, Christian leaders. And um, we were just talking a little bit about uh, the three of us are uh, co-hosting the podcast today. We're just talking about cohorts. And Christy, you just were mentioning that you had just started a cohort, and it was your best first meeting of a Gravity Gravity Leadership Academy cohort that uh, you'd ever had. It was. I was just like, why? Yeah, it really was. Let's hit record and figure this out. Well, so I have these eight women and number one, we're super spread out. So um, there's people in Indonesia and people in America and people, anyway, it's really Mm. fun to kind of just have the diversity of that. But our very first meeting, and I've done this a lot, like where we've, I've, led through cohorts, but our very first meeting, all of the women on there were the most vulnerable and the most authentic that I've ever seen a group be in the initial meeting. It it Mm. kind of, I mean, it really did flabbergast me in a way um, that was surprising and beautiful and exciting for what the future is going to be because... Mm. I I actually said to a girl in the group, I typically you get that kind of uh, unity or or vulnerability maybe in the the middle to the end, Mm -hmm. but to start there um, Mm. just makes me so excited for what the end is going to be. Mm. Uh, So these women are hungry and are willing to kind of open up, um, unzip a little bit and um, let us see their hearts. And so I'm excited. That's great. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. I, I've had cohorts like that as well, where you know I don't know what it is, but something sinks up right away. And it's it's a really normal process for people to sort of feel things out as they move into it. You know, it doesn't mean it's going right. to be a bad cohort, but it just means like it's kind of it's kind of weird to try to connect online with people that you don't know, right? Um, and that that kind of thing. And so, um, but the vulnerability is really a, a key part of it. Um, people learn how to share what's really going on because we believe God meets us right where we're right where we are really at. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about that cohort too. Christy, you have uh, led quite a few of these locally in your own church. You've led all, you've led like, you've led more of these than I have. I feel like <laughs> maybe, no, I'm probably, joking. It's true. It's probably true. But, uh, but it might be true. Um, what is, like, what is it about, and this is, you know, this is a big reason that you're uh, co-hosting the podcast with us. Um, you just sort of you love what this is all about, but what is it about um, leading people through this and going through it yourself? You've been through this <laughs> yourself like two or three <laughs> times as well. Um, what is it uh, about it that that makes you want to continue to um, participate in this process? Yeah, Ben, I I do believe in it. It it has been um, one of the most transformational times in my life. Initially, I went through the first cohort with Matt and he was done. And I was like, I'm not done. I need to go through it again. And he was like, what? And so I just did it again the next year with them. 
um, because awesome. because the spirit was doing such work in my heart and mm. really like I did not have language. I believed in what gravity leadership was doing and and I I wanted that and I fought for that, but I didn't really have the language until I had gone through the cohort. Mm. And I didn't really have eyes to be able to see nor really express because I didn't have the language of of God being active and present Mm -hmm. and recognizing him, noticing what he was doing and really going through the the process of what are the lies that I'm believing. And in my life, I would kind of notice something and then I would want to fix it. And that was my discipleship model. And there was such a miss. It it seems... Seems correct, doesn't it? I mean, it seems good. You wouldn't you want to fix it? Yeah, but, it's, but yeah, then you're right. it's yeah, not, then it's there's not the a right big approach. miss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for real life change, um, I saw it in myself, and I've seen in lots of people who have gone through this. Mm. They look and they say they talk about their journeys with Jesus. Mm. Um, in fact, I actually got a text of somebody who was in your your cohort, Matt, uh, mm. just this week, and. Mm. Um, well, I think that you're done with it, but he was just praising gravity leadership and just mm. saying how the Lord used it. It was instrumental in his life as mm. he journeyed uh, with Jesus. And so I believe in it. I know I sound like a commercial and that it's like, <laughs> please don't hear that. It's really my heart. I just, to the point where I've paid for other people. I'm like, I yeah. believe in this. Oh, I wow. want you to do it. Yeah. Well, stories like that, Christy, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Stories like that are what get me out of bed in the morning. Um, and, uh, you know, on the on the hard days make me realize that, okay, God's at work and this is all worth it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And um, listeners, if you would like to check it out, we're starting, we always, we're starting new cohorts all the time. Uh, we're starting one this month, uh, actually, that I'm going to be leading. Um, that, um, at least one this month. Um, and if you're interested in checking it out, go to uh, gravityleadership.com slash academy to get all the details. And uh, feel free to reach out if you have any questions, podcast at gravityleadership.com. Yeah. Um, you tell the story in this book about uh, some of the some of the toxic or abusive ways that churches handle accusations. Uh, one of them I just wanted to mention was part of my story. Um, you mentioned that people who have experienced abuse or bringing allegations of abuse are often told to follow Matthew eighteen, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the woman who maybe had a weird encounter with her pastor, she's told, "Have you gone directly to him yet? And have you, you know, shared this with him?" Um, maybe for those who are listening, that would maybe be their first instinct. If there's an allegation of something that went wrong, then it has to be worked out. Matthew 18, could you, could you maybe give us a little vision about how that's not the whole story or why that's insufficient when there's a power or gender dynamic at work? Yeah. Okay. I mean, for instance, I mean, this, this depends in part upon what happened here, what what the allegation is. But Matthew 18 essentially says, if you have something against a brother, go tell him, a sibling, go tell him. Um, And you may gain him. If not, then bring in someone else, then two or three. And if that doesn't work, then go to the whole church. If that doesn't work, kick him out. Okay. 
All right, that, that's a pretty good strategy that if you uh, offend someone or you are offended by someone, to talk to them. This is a sort of uh, egalitarian framework where we talk to one another when we have offenses with one another. So if, um, you know, I think we can deal with that. That was pretty clear. But what happens when it is sexual abuse by a male against a female? Just that right there is a power dynamic in most cases. Most men um, have more power. Okay, now let's just make it a pastor. Now when a pastor does this, a pastor is a mediator, a priest, in the perception of most people. Even the people who are as low church as you can get, they actually believe that their pastor speaks with God and and has mediated God's grace to them in different ways, all right? So now we have a female who has been harassed or abused by a woman, and she's supposed to go talk to that pastor. Okay, couple things. Number one, she's putting herself in a position of being re-abused almost always. Secondly, the power dynamic is so unequal that the allegation being put before the pastor is going to be overpowered by the pastor himself. So to me, it is a mockery of Matthew 18 to ask a vulnerable woman to confront her abuser privately. And, uh, and I know that in most of these cases, these pastors would not permit um, another person to be in the room. <laughs> because they have everything to lose and nothing to gain. So um, it's a power abuse, it's a sexual abuse, it's gonna trigger, it's going to re-abuse the woman, and uh, the history of this is just not that way. It, it doesn't work. So to me, it's a misuse of Matthew 18 to think that it applies in every circumstance. So when, when they were using it, my daughter said, Dad, everybody is saying that, that um, the women who went to the Chicago Tribune are not following Matthew 18. She was saying this. She was hearing it from all these Willow people. Well, I wasn't hearing it. I wasn't paying attention to those Twitter pages and Facebook stories. I, I didn't see it. Uh, then they were appealing to the pastoral epistles that you should never make an accusation against an elder apart from two or three witnesses. Okay. So uh, I said, all right, I understand they want to be biblical. But I said, you know, there is actually a text in the Bible about this in Deuteronomy that completely goes at it from a different angle. And the angle is the woman's story is believed because no one was there to watch it. Hmm. Now that, when I brought this up, it was like, I heard some people say, well, it's the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the book of Jesus. That's the one he was using, okay? And when the two or three witnesses that Jesus used, that Paul used, that came from the Old Testament too. So uh, that text was uh, actually played an important role at Willow, that they realized they need to be more careful about using Matthew 18. And I hope more people pay attention to that little text in Deuteronomy 22. So then the, the, the other one with the, the, you have to have two or three witnesses 
to accuse an elder. I, I just simply have said this over and over. How many times uh, does a pastor sexually abuse a woman in the presence of someone else? You know, the, the chances are, are very low. These are done in private, you know, when they, when they know no one's looking. So, uh, so at that case, you're not going to have two or three witnesses nor, most of the time. But it's more important than that. In the Willow case, they did. They had as many as 10 women who had talked. And um, what, do you, what do you want? Uh, what kind of evidence do you need? And so um, I think that we need to be a little bit wiser and discriminating and discerning in which texts we think apply in which circumstances. So that, that's one thing we learned. Scott, can I just say thank you? Like I kind of I kind of have like a little bit of a stomach ache because I'm thinking of all of these women who need to hear that. There there just are too many. One is too many, but there are so many in this nation and across the world that have experienced that, that are silent, that don't feel empowered um, by the men in their life who will stand up like you are standing up now, or that Matt, that you have stood up. Um, I just really appreciate it and just want to say thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And uh, we're glad that we that we get to play a part in this. Um it is extraordinarily frightening for women to come forward. They are so overpowered to begin with. They're questioning God. Yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting. I actually told Matt before you got on, um, I've worked at several different churches since Harvest. And um, I had a situation where I was in a meeting with my boss. And, um, and I was at a coffee shop. We weren't, we were in a public place and he reached his hand over and put his hand on mine and left it there. And it was weird. It was awkward. It was inappropriate. It made me feel not okay. And I came home, I told my husband and he said, you should tell him. Now I feel like I'm strong. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I'll tell you, but there was something in me that was like, that sounds terrifying. E even, even a hand on a hand. I mean, it, it was nothing beyond that, but a hand on a hand was terrifying to me. And, um, and I did, I actually went to my boss the next day and, and said, I need to have a meeting with you. And, and I said, this made me feel uncomfortable and this is, this is not okay. And here are the reasons why and la la la. And he responded, uh, so humbly, so he was like, I am so sorry. I did not, I meant compassion. I didn't mean anything else, but you know what? I'm going to go home and tell my wife, I'm going to have my wife call you. And, and like, I want you guys to have a conversation. There became like um, a policy for that church that I was working at. Um, that then became, how do you, how do you handle situations like this? And you're not going to, you're not going to go to the person, right? You're going to, you need to have somebody else who can stand up for you and who can hear your story with compassion and empathy. And, and, um, but it was, it was interesting to me, like that small thing felt very terrifying to me that I can't imagine, um, bigger stories that women have and the ways that they've been abused. There's no way that they can go. They need someone to stand up for them. 
but I mean, even then, I mean, look at the look at the women that Bill Hybels was harassing. Let's just say harassing. All right, Abusing. these aren't shrinking violets. These are no. These are Na- Nancy right? Orberg's tough. She's strong. <laughs> Vonda yeah. Dyer, Vonda Dyer went to Bill and said, "Knock it off." And um, uh, so uh, these these yeah, I mean, and yet. They were dragged through the mud in public. False accusations, spinning of stories, things said about them that weren't true, jobs lost, fire, demotions, all kinds of things. We know a woman at Willow who lodged an allegation and uh, said something, just said something. And the next Monday, her office was moved to some place next to a bathroom so it would be interrupted with noise all day long. And um, this, these, this is just the beginnings of, of the sort of, we're right now, uh, Laura's in com- communication with a young woman who um, is alleging pretty, I mean, stronger allegations than anything we've heard about a person with a lot of, a lot of status. And scared to death. I mean, this is is frightening. And even having someone, even having someone uh, so, like me or Matt or you, Christy, to defend her or, or to come to her defense is not enough because you you have to be able to lodge an allegation in such a way that it will succeed. And it's these women at, at Willow Creek um, did not know one another and did not know one another's stories because that's the way it works. So it was only when it started to come public that other women were able to come forward and then the mass of numbers or the numbers was allowed to, to uh, hit home. And so uh, this young woman that, that Laura has, is in communication with um, is alone, and there's no way for it. It's scary, and you know, I, I, I'm not gonna. I, I can't publicly vouch that this story is true. I mean, very few of them are lies, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that you have to be very careful about. And this is why, you know, the, some of the women said to me, "What? Why are pastors not standing up for us?" Yes. And I said, because they'll be sued. They, <laughs> they, they are afraid just as much as you are because they don't know what happened. They believe you. It's your word against another person's word because this occurred in private. It's very difficult. But when seven, ten people come forward with a, a similar story, you know, uh, all of a sudden it gets really credible. Everybody starts believing, and then, then it so. It's it's really hard, and I. Uh, that's why we dedicated the book to what we call wounded resistors, people who resisted the toxicity in a church, but were wounded because they resisted, and they resisted right. They did the truth, but um, they suffered for it. Yeah, yeah, Scott. I think. 
the first part of the book is powerful in the sense that it names like the fear-based, narcissistic, toxic uh, sort of culture that that sort of surrounds a pastor and enables this abusive, toxic leadership to exist. I actually was thinking, I don't know if you have a comment on this. This is so this is tangentially related. But I was thinking about the people who get caught up. There was a couple stories about people who were on staff at these churches and got caught up in the system that was toxic and how they found themselves being complicit in or giving uh, giving sort of uh, credence to abusive, toxic things that they wouldn't necessarily, outside of that system, have chosen to give credence to or, or do, mm-hmm. and just how the, the, the totality of the system actually creates another layer of, I don't know how you would describe it, responsibility, but also agency. Like, it's like, and I was just thinking about how there's these conversations about how, um, uh, about race in our, in our culture and how racism is, is, a, is something that um, exists, not just in personal prejudices, but in systems and structures. And I'm like, and that's another power thing. And I guess as I read your book, I just kept thinking about how I am so ignorant <laughs> about how power is at work in these systems. Um, and if it wasn't for these stories from these women or some stories from my black brothers and sisters about how power impacts them and changes how they act and how they experience the power from somebody like a Bill Hybels, like I, it just wouldn't be on my radar at all. I just yeah, wouldn't notice yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you felt that or interacted with that as you began to uncover these stories. Well, yeah. I mean, this was this was a part of the um, trying to come to terms uh, with how to explain some of this stuff. I mean, we know some people who were corrupted by these other leaders, and we know some people who were involved in this. I know uh, someone at Harvest who was not corrupted who tried to resist and eventually left, okay? Um, Who resisted and tried to make a difference. It didn't work and left. Um, But some people are corrupted by all this. But but, uh, Matt, I think part of the thing that you're getting at is a statement that we use several times by David Brooks. I'm not inclined, I don't read all of David Brooks. I do like him, I think he's pretty shrewd. But David Brooks talks about how never, I think a a quotation's about like this, never underestimate the power of the the workplace where you work to make you the kind of person who fits in that kind of workplace. Something like this, okay. Now, um, Matthew Krausman is associated with Miroslav Volf at Yale. Krausman is a pastor vineyard pastor who's written an amazing dissertation on on sin as an agent that it is an emergent agent that individual sins create a culture of sin that becomes an agent that acts back upon the humans Mm. to to keep doing that because it makes it more comfortable because you fit in that culture and I would say that if you just add up the characteristics of a toxic church culture, you just simply have to recognize that that is an agent. Toxicity becomes an agent 
of toxicity that makes you like this. And Laura found some stories of people who were in a church culture and found themselves being out of character. They, they had become mean because that's what the culture promoted them to be. And they didn't even recognize it's the color of water, Matt, Christy. It's, it's, it's the air we breathe and before long, it's the way you are. And you, you look back five years and say, how did, how did I become that way? Mm. So that it's uh, the emergent properties and uh, Matthew Krausman has all the technical terms for it, but um, it's called subservience and downward causation. But in just a simple circle, at the bottom are the individual acts of toxicity, and at the top of the circle are, is the agent that acts back down upon the person as the sins develop the character of, let's say, sin as an agent. Well, I believe that Tove is the same way, that if we learn the practices of Tove in a church, it can become an agent. And I don't know, but you've been around people who are positively tov, at least you think they are. And when you're around them, you find themselves behaving like that person or that culture. Yes. That's that's the, that's systemic tov or success, systemic toxicity. And it, tov doesn't happen because we preach a series on it or because we read that in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. All of a sudden, well, okay, we're going to have tov. Well, that's not the way it works. It has to become a culture for it to uh, become an agent uh, for a church culture, and uh, that's where that's where we got to work. Yeah, you name Mister Rogers in his biography uh, as one of the stories in there. Uh, that little section about how he did his his quote devotional time yeah. and his imaginative prayer, Scott, yeah. that blew me away. Yeah, right? yeah. It blew me away. Um, you, uh, I, also, had lot, I, you, I had a lot more pages on Mr. Rogers, but they, you know, we, uh, he, you can tell a lot of stories about him. He, he's a real he's, deal. He, he's the real deal on, on Tove. Yeah. Uh, well, so you name, you name Tove, you name Tove, and I, I want to name him real quick, and then Christy, I'd love to hear which one struck you and stood out to you if you have questions about him. But you name that, that Tove churches, they nurture these things empathy, grace, People first, truth, justice, service, and Christ likeness. And you've got tangible, relational, granular ways that those are inhabited in each chapter. Christy, which one of those struck you as maybe the most important for your life or the, the one you, you had the most curiosity about? Yeah, I think the first thing that, that came to mind as I read those is, is the people first. Um, yeah. Because I, I do think uh, in a culture where there is no tov, it's, um, it's the leader first. It's a reputation first. It's, you know, their identity first or whatever. And, um, and so, it, actually, I said to Matt before you came on, Scott, I kind of wish that there was like a, a, an evaluation, some sort of like 10-question quiz to like help churches, cultures be able to kind of ask these questions about what are we are we are we a culture that is good that there is goodness and that it's seen um because i think it's really important and i think too many times um churches are more 
interested in those three B's that you mentioned before, Scott, rather than yeah. actual people. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, this is, this is a very interesting issue. Uh, and I don't believe that most megachurches have the uh, infrastructure to make people first. All right, now, I, 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 we, if you notice, we almost never use a church that is existing as a positive example because you never know. Okay, so we didn't, we didn't want to use any that something might backfire on us, you know. Yeah. So, um, so we used Mr. Rogers, and we used that Tate's Presbyterian because that was a story that they did it right. They might be toxic. They're not, but if they were, uh, it, wouldn't end, it wouldn't affect that story. Okay. Um, I know that Andy Stanley's church... I've, I've been there a number of times, and I know some of their leaders, that they say that they are small groups that meet together on Sunday. All right? All right, I, I think, okay, now that, I can handle a megachurch that operates this way, if it actually operates that way. Because then every person is in a small group, every person who's committed to this church. You know, you've got a church that big, and you've got speakers that are that amazing, and entertaining and you know you learn from them and grow um uh, when you have that many you're going to have a lot of people just showing up and not being committed but let's just say you take the committed people um i remember uh, attending willow one time thinking what if i had a heart attack and died who who would who would take care of the funeral you know i had no idea I know it wasn't going to be. I didn't know Bill Hybels. I had never met him. Um, I've met him since, but I, at that time. All right. I, I believe that the only legitimate understanding of a church is when everyone is known by name to people that matter, let's say, as leaders or pastors in the church and where their story is becoming known and where their story is becoming part of that church's story. That's when it's a church. Until then, it is on, it's possibly on the, on the way. And so people first means, you know, people's names. I uh, did not like something. I loved teaching a course this fall on the book of Revelation, but because of some things going on at Northern, they allowed a lot of students in the classroom, and I had, you know, 55 or something like that in a classroom, and almost everyone was online. In the last three or four weeks, it was all online because of COVID. I did not like not knowing some of those faces out there. They were there, and it was a part of our program, and okay. I like the classes when I know the students' names, and all of a sudden, you know, I know I know her story, and I know what I just said is going to really bother her, or he is going to be really irritated by what I said, or this I just said this because that person needed to hear this kind of gracious word, you know. Uh, so that I think is what teaching and pastoring is about. Yeah, and. That's a part of the people first, is knowing people's names. I think it was Maya Angelou. Did Maya Angelou also teach? 
I told I the know. story one time at a I think I she know. taught at Duke. Which one of the? I think she taught literature at Duke. Hmm. And um, the first day of class, I think it was Maya Angela, Toni Morrison maybe. The first day of class, everybody introduces themselves. The second day of class, they do it all over again. And someone said, why are we doing this again? He said, because you didn't learn other people's names last week. We need to learn one another's stories. This is the heart of church life. Knowing names, knowing stories. That's what it means to put people first. And I, I got to tell you that it was in my mid-50s when some of these names began slipping from me and it really bothered me because I took pride in knowing my student's name on the second time we met every student. Yeah. I'd go through my picture lists and I, I had to know who they were. It was really important to me. And then in my mid-50s, I'd come back after the fall term and I couldn't remember some of the names of the first term. I went, oh boy. I wondered if I had Alzheimer's, you know. Um, but um, I think that's so important. And one time we, I, had a, I had a student teacher at uh, North Park who came to me after a couple weeks and said, uh, I have a student in my front row who can't stand me. I said, well, how do you know he can't stand you? He said, well, he just has that look about him. And I said to him, what's, what's the student's name? He said, I have no idea. I said, okay, here's, here's two things to do. Hmm. I said, number one, I want you to learn his name. I want you to stand at the door so that when he comes to class every day, you greet him by name. See what happens. I saw him about two weeks later. I said, how's it going with that student? He said, man, we just had coffee together. We've become friends. And you know, it's the same thing, Christy. He learned his name. That, that is like a, the magic of acknowledgement. That's, that's so big. I, I, totally with you. It's wonderful. Yeah, maybe to close here, Scott, I remember 15 years ago, you and I having a, a pint at one of the pubs in Libertyville, and I was asking you why, you why you decided not to teach graduate students anymore, why you were teaching undergrad students, and uh, I don't know if you remember this, but you told me, I get to teach, gos I get to teach the Gospels to a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds, and half of them don't know Jesus, and you just lit up as you told us uh, you know, you had about eight ounces of beer in you. Maybe that was lighting you up. But I th also think it was the evangelism. And you were you were telling us how you get to proclaim the gospel from the gospels to these college students, and they come to you after class, and they talk about their lives, and they come to realize that Jesus has a real tangible meaning and significance in their actual lives. Um, and so, like, I, th I think I just want to let our listeners know that this isn't an ac this, this the second half of the book that we barely touched on it isn't abstract and academic it's very tangible in terms of answering the question what are people for yeah. what are they for and and if you have this institutional inertia where people actually fit into the machine and you have to and people are either a threat to the brand or there's something you can use to build the brand then you're going to create these toxic environments where uh, power is abused and people get hurt. But if people are for, like what you've just named, Scott, and you've named Christy, if people are actually to be known and, and welcomed and received and seen, uh, then it, it be, we can begin to build, it's one artifact of many you name, where we can build to 
begin to build a culture that is resistant to abuse. Yeah, yeah. It's allergic to it. Yep. Right? I mean, it detects it, sees it. It's an immune system. Tov yeah. is the immune system of the kingdom of God, right? And it, yeah, it is, good. becomes resilient. Scott, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, your book is, it's really good. I echo Christie's sentiments. I've got some, I've encountered some abusive and toxic environments in my life. And um, I also felt seen and known and also redeemed as I read. So uh, it could be a hard read for many of our listeners, but I think it's a significant and needed read for many too. So thanks a lot. And will you pass on, yeah, will you pass on appreciation to Laura for us too? I will. And thank good you, to Scott. meet you, Christy. Yes, thank you. It's great to be with you again. Great to yeah. be with you, too. And I remember that time at Mickey Finn's in Libertyville. <laughs> <laughs> we had several. They were awesome. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.